Welcome to Central Assembly's podcast. Here is a message from our lead pastor, Kurt Jenkins. We pray this message speaks to you. All right, we're going to continue with our Faith to Believe series today. We're going to talk about the gift and just receiving by faith some of the things that Mike even mentioned we're going to hit on in a little bit as well. Just a quick review uh, from the first week. Four elements of faith that we talked about to be able to grab hold of from God's word. The first element is knowledge. To have faith, you have to have intellectual content to grab hold of so somehow it gets from our head to our heart. So the knowledge is God's word. This is where we're learning our knowledge to have faith in God with. The second element is assurance. This is what you believe. So it's taking the knowledge that you're learning from God's word and you're applying or you're saying, listen, I have assurance that this word is true. So you're not looking at the book, at, you know, that the Bible is half uh, fiction and half nonfiction. You're not looking at it as, well, it might be true. And there's some, you know, people that argue against it. No, you're believing that this is God's living word. So you have assurance that the knowledge you have learned is true. The third element is trust. This is who you believe. This is now when you have the knowledge, you have assurance that God's word is true, and now you have trust that the Father is actually going to bring his word to pass in your life. If you see here, you're not trusting in the miracle. You're not trusting in the breakthrough. You're not trusting in the provision. You're trusting in the one who brings the miracle, the one who brings the breakthrough, the one who brings the provision. Does this make sense? So we have to get to that point of actually trusting that the Father is going to fulfill his word, not just in the world in general, but in your life specific. And the fourth element we talked about is action. And I wanna talk about that a little bit later today too, of what action actually looks like. I think sometimes when we hear the word action, we feel like now we have to earn our way into it. We have to prove ourselves to God. We We have to do something physically. But a lot of times action is doing what Mike just did. It's speaking over things, it's praying, it's taking time to actively Focus on the Lord during that time and not just sit on and wait for something to happen. So today, the one element we're going to talk about is that gift. Obviously, we're a Christian church. We believe Jesus is the best gift that has ever been seen or experienced on this earth. One of the most famous verses in the Christian faith, John 3, 16. In the New International Version, it reads like this. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal Life. A lot of your translations would say everlasting life, or you know, a few different words would be switched here. But out of God's love for us, he gave us his son. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, right? We celebrate the giving of the son. At Easter, we celebrate his death and his resurrection. But in between those two moments in time are 33 years of faithful living. How Jesus actually demonstrated what a lifestyle of faith would look like. We, we know here that he was God, but he lived as a human. It says that he, the Bible says that he emptied himself of God's power to walk as a human being would that was sinless and filled with the Holy Spirit. So he walked in faith, believing that the Father would fulfill the word and the promises that were over his life as an example of what we can do in our lives. Along with Jesus being a gift, faith is also a gift, along with grace, along with salvation. In Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, it says this, For it is by grace, say by grace, grace. you have been saved, say saved. Saved. Now it's through faith. So it's by grace that we're saved, but it is actually through the faith that we have in God's ability and willingness to actually save us. 
It says that this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. So there's not one person at the end of time that could say, hey, look at what I did. Look what I accomplished. Look what I did for God to get saved. There's gifts splattered throughout these verses. So we have grace that is a gift from God. It's his unmerited favor. His salvation is a gift from God. It's his ability to save us from the grip of the enemy and that we could be born again into his family, being adopted into the family of God, into the kingdom of God. But all of this happens, it's activated through our faith. Now, the thing is, it says that this is not from ourselves. Grace is not from ourselves. Salvation is not from ourselves. And faith is not from ourselves. Without, without God giving us the gift of faith, we would not have the ability to believe in a God that we've never seen before with our own eyes and believe that Jesus, who was born of a virgin, right? And he was, he was born, lived a sinless life, lived full of the Holy Spirit, died, was resurrected, is at the right hand of the Father. We've never seen these things with our bare eyes in the visible, but we believe it because it's in God's word because we've experienced him in so many different ways in our lives that we can believe his word is true. But it's through a gift called faith. Now, if you look at grace and you look at faith, Grace is completely up to God. It's a gift from God, and he's the one that's pouring it out upon us. Faith, on the other hand, is a gift from God, but it's our responsibility to steward it right. So we have Christmas coming up in two days. There are going to be thousands upon thousands of gifts given to children and adults across this world. The gift giver determines the measure in which, how the size of the gift, what the gift is. And once that gift is given, it is now the responsibility of the recipient to steward it well. So if a child gets a bike in two days and takes it outside and lets it sit there all winter and all spring, how many of you know it's not gonna be very useful? It's gonna be rusty. The chain's gonna be all kinked up. We could say, well, well, you could blame the person that gave it to you. Well, they gave me something that was able to rust and this and this. No, 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 no. Once that gift of faith is given, grace and mercy, all up to God. Faith is different. Faith is a gift given from God. It is up to you to steward well. You have to make the choice to believe his word so that your faith will get stronger. Can you say amen? amen? That means so be it in your life. So Mary received the gift of grace. Remember when the angel says, highly favored one. She already received that gift of grace. She received the gift of faith, but she still had to wait expectantly for the birth of this promise. In Luke chapter two, starting at verse one, if you have your Bibles out, you might be in a different translation. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. It says, at the time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This is the first census taken when... I always get this name wrong. (laughs) Quirinius, the governor of Syria, all returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, remember, this was prophesied all throughout the Old Testament, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. 
See, she, I, I like this, even in different translations. She wasn't just pregnant. She was expecting a promise to be fulfilled through prophecy. There's a, there's a, there's a, a difference between just carrying a promise and expecting a promise. Like even for, for you moms who have had children, there's a big difference just being pregnant and expecting a child. If you're being pregnant, you're not uh, going through, through the proper steps of staying healthy and rest and nutrition and seeing your physician and so on, then you're just pregnant. But if you're going through all of those motions, you're actually expecting a healthy, fulfilled promise to come to pass. So Mary's just not walking around pregnant. She is expecting this child to be born. Verse six, it says, and while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. <clears throat> she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips <clears throat> excuse me, of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Just a few things reading these verses is this that, I, that I've seen reading and rereading these verses. Number one is the promise was not fulfilled in the manner or location that they may have first expected. You know, Mary and Joseph, they read the Old Testament prophecies. They've heard about it. But seriously, as a mom, she probably wanted a nice, warm, cozy room, all of her family around her, a little bit different of circumstances. But you don't see in one place that they complained about that. They didn't walk away. They didn't say, I'm not, I'm not doing this. I'm not here in a manger. There's no way. Where's the four-star room? You don't see that at all. So the promise was probably not fulfilled in the way that they may have thought it should have been, but was the promise still fulfilled? Yes. I believe the best answers to prayer and the fulfillment of God's promises, they just simply may not show up the way you think they're going to. That doesn't mean he's not answering. Again, we put, we put him in this box and we imagine when we have faith in his word, then we let our emotions and our soul, we have faith in our spirit, but then we let our emotions run with it and we paint a picture of what his fulfilled promise looks like. I believe sometimes he's answering our prayers and we're just missing it. Like, God, give me opportunities to minister to somebody. And then the person he wants you to minister to walks past your office 10 times in that day. At the end of the day, you're like, God, you didn't give me anybody. Yes, I did. You weren't looking for it. Oh, but I thought it was going to look like this. Right? Mike was talking about my bills will be paid. So you're praying, God, I want increase. Give me extra money. And then when, you're, when your bills come in, you don't notice that all of your bills somehow miraculously have gone down over a couple months, which allows you to pay your other bills. But you're looking for increase this way instead of decrease this way, and then we miss it. So if Mary was cranky about, there's no way I'm laying my child in that, in a feeding trough. She would have missed the fulfillment, the true satisfaction and joy that she should have experienced, which she did experience, because she was willing to receive the promise of God by faith and not try to put it in her own box. I believe that she, her, and Joseph were able to have what I'm going to call heart faith and not just head faith. Because head faith can be argued out of, and you'll probably argue yourself out of it, but they had a heart faith, and there is a difference. Just like we talked about flaky faith and fake faith uh, last week or two weeks ago, just these two extremes. This head faith stops short of being biblical. Head faith has a root in intellectualism. And because it remains in your head and your knowledge, it's all intellect. So then what happens is you debate about it. You argue about it. Have you ever had somebody like try to argue you into heaven? Right? It's, just, it's all head and you're not sensing any anointing on it. You're not sensing the love of God. You're like, he's sharing scriptures, but it sounds like he doesn't like me. You know? And it's because it's head. It's head faith. It's stuck in the brain and it hasn't 
traveled 12 inches down to your heart where the love of God and the anointing of God can actually flow on it. John Wesley, he was a revivalist who birthed the once alive and and, uh, lively church, the Methodist church. He said this, that the devil has given the church a substitute for faith that looks and sounds so much like faith that many people can't tell the difference. He called it mental assent. Mental assent means that you agree with something in your mind, but it never goes deeper than that. So when we talk about the four elements of faith, knowledge is necessary, but it can't stop there. So a lot of Christians, they say, well, I believe his word and I believe these things, but I'm still a mess. I'm still worried. I'm still concerned. It's still not working out. That's because you believe, but you believe it in your head. You never let it grip your heart to the point of saying, I know in my knower. I know in the deepest part of me that these things will come true. Yeah, but you don't see it. I don't care. They're going to come true, but you don't feel it. I don't care. They're going to come true. Yeah, but things are actually looking like they're going in the reverse direction. I don't care. I believe these things are going to come true. There's a big difference between head faith and heart faith. Even even doctors who are not Christians, I honor our medical professionals. I think they're amazing that they have the knowledge that they have and they apply their faith to it, pray with their patients and watch as these bodies are restored. However, doctors that are not Christians are a good example of head faith. They are filled with tons and tons and tons of knowledge and then they apply their knowledge with the scientific method to your body. And what happens is this, is there's statistics, there's odds, there's calculations of how medication and how different approaches are going to work out. And then you get labeled with that percentage. So if you have an illness that only 5% of people survive, you now have a 5% uh, uh, life expectancy. Somehow this, this disease, now you are labeled with that. That's, they actually have faith in their head that this is how it's supposed to work enter in a Christian doctor or just any other believer, if we have faith that God is our healer, even though we're not seeing it, feeling it, sensing it, or experiencing it, we don't let a statistic or the odds are against you to come upon us. So we don't take that label. We say, okay, I understand that those things are other people, but that's not me. That's not going to be my experience. And that can happen with finances. It can happen with relationships. I'm just picking something that I feel like you can grab hold of, of a doctor that doesn't have faith versus a doctor that does. Where now the transition can come into my heart. The odds are against me. The statistics are against me. The medicine isn't working. The routines aren't working. The exercise isn't working. But I still believe my God is able to do this, this, and this. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying leave your doctor, leave your medicine. I'm not saying that. I'm saying let all the information now filter through your heart eventually so you can have faith in his word and not some random statistic that's out there. So heart faith, it goes beyond the visible and it actually believes in a God who's in charge of both the visible and the invisible. So it's when you stop looking at everything else around you and say, you know what, I believe that God is absolutely in charge of both the visible and the invisible. You can actually tell when that transition takes place from head faith to heart faith because the visible isn't dictating the level of hope that you have. So if things are like looking down and things are getting worse and things are doing this, your hope isn't like waning. Your hope isn't going away. In fact, if anything, it'll give you a holy anger at the devil. So wait a minute, you're not doing this to me. 
I see in his word. I believe in his word. I'm standing on his word. So though your emotions might get out of whack sometimes, you, you know, your head might, might head down a, a certain path, when that heart faith is intact and active, your hope is not going to decrease. Frustration might at times, but your hope will not wane. Are you with me? So I want to take a look a little bit more at heart faith. In Romans 10, chapter 9, it talks about this is how you actually receive salvation. It says, if you declare with your mouth, what was Mike saying? Speaking forth what you believe to be true. So say declare. It says, if you declare with your mouth, it's a speaking forth. Jesus is Lord. It's not saying Jesus might be my Lord. I'm, I'm pretty sure the word says that. No, it's a declaration of faith saying Jesus is Lord. And believe Where? It does not say believe in your head. It, says, do not, it doesn't say believe with all the statistics. It doesn't say do an, a, you know, a literary analysis of God's word to make sure everything lines up you know, the way that you think it should. It says to confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead and then you will be saved. It goes on to say, for it is with your heart that you believe. That's your spirit, man. That's the, the innermost part of who you are. It's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Right? It's exactly what Mike was saying. There's a confession of your faith with your mouth because you don't believe it just with your head. You've allowed the knowledge of God's word to come to a place of assurance where you actually trust him. And now you're taking the action to say, Jesus is my Lord. Go back to Psalm 103 sometime this week, and then you could say, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my forgiver. Jesus is my healer. Jesus is my provider. Jesus is the one who gives me mercy. Jesus is the one who crowns my head with righteousness. All those things. You can confess that with your mouth, not just from knowledge, though. You gotta believe it in your heart. Jesus is talking in Mark chapter 11, verse 22. I think you read this. You read this, I think, just just today, Mike. It says, then Jesus said to his disciples, have faith in God. Who's our faith in? Our faith is not in the paid bill. Our faith is not in the healing. Our faith is not in those things. Our faith is in the one who provides. So as I tell you the truth, you can say, say, say. So there's a speaking forth to this mountain. May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. But here it says, but you must really believe. This is the New Living Translation. You must really believe it will happen. Those words mean have a confident trust. What is trust? It's faith. So you could say here, but you must really have faith that it's going to happen. You must really believe. Where are you supposed to believe? In your head or your heart? In your heart. It says, and have no doubt where? In your heart. So it's like sometimes we're walking in faith and something hits our mind and something hits, you know, and we get discouraged and, and we're thinking through things. Listen, Jesus isn't phased by that. God's not phased by that. You feel like sometimes maybe you've disqualified yourself because you're discouraged for a moment. That's not true. What did Jesus say? Don't doubt where? In your heart. So if you're facing some doubts in your mind, just go back to the word until your mind is renewed to a point where you know that your mind is connecting with the faith of your heart that's coming from God's word. Because he says here, I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe, where? In your head or your heart? In your heart that you have received it, it will be yours. So there's probably a lot of people believing things just in their head. 
They're analyzing how God probably can do this thing. And they're speaking it forth and praying it. And it's not coming true. And we don't know why it's coming true. Let today be revelation to you today. Just ask the Lord, God, allow this thing to connect from my head to my heart. So I have true heart faith. I believe in my heart the way I did the day that I said, Jesus is Lord. Let me believe for all of the other things the same way I believed in that moment. We see the transition in Mary from head to heart. In Luke chapter one, verse 29, she was confused and disturbed. It says, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. She's analyzing her situation. And then by verse 38, Mary responds this, I'm the Lord's servant. May everything you've said about me come true. How many of you know there's a transition taking place from her head to her heart? She went from confused and disturbed to, sure, I'll be a virgin that carries the son of the most high God. In one conversation's time, it goes from her head to her heart. So a very practical way that we can do this is fixing our thoughts. If we know that we, if we're grabbing a hold of faith in our heart and we want to align our thoughts, because I believe that our thoughts literally destroy our faith at times. We argue ourselves, rationalize ourselves out of faith. So how do we align our thoughts with the faith that we have in our heart? Philippians 4, 6 says this. This is such a convenient time to tell you two days before Christmas after like all of the running around that we've done. Don't worry about anything. (laughs) Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. I would say that verse is obeyed 50% of the way. Where you might be praying about everything, but you are adding 100% of your worry to it also. So we pray about everything. We're praying, 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 praying. And then while we're praying, while we're praying with our spirit, what's our mind doing? Worrying, 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 how it's all gonna work out. Says, so tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Listen, I used to read this verse of just thanking him for all he has done in the past, like for me. And the Lord just showed me, wait a minute, no, no, no. You should be thanking me for things that are about to happen because he's already done that on the cross. Everything that we need is wrapped up into his birth, his death, his resurrection, right? So we're not just thanking him of the things, we're not thanking him just for the things that we've already seen. We're saying, God, I thank you. Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross. I will not walk in shame. I thank you for becoming poor that I may be rich in all things. Does this make sense? We're thanking him for all he has not just done personally for us, but all he has done for all of humanity and how that now applies to our life. So it's pretty cool. We can actually thank him in faith. We can let Thanksgiving be an activation for our faith. Then you will experience God's peace. So if you want peace, we sing, you know, peace on earth. Our minds are going, souls going. I'm rushing around trying to get everything done. So we're praying, but if we're choosing to have self-control and not worry, then the peace of God comes. So what is his peace? It exceeds anything we can understand. So when we have God's peace, we actually give up our need and our right to have to understand everything. Guess what happens? When you give up your right to have to understand everything, your faith stays seated in your heart. Because now you're saying, God, I don't have to figure out how you're going to do this. I'm not going to paint a picture of how my promise is going to look. I'm going to trust in my heart and let your peace reign. 
So if we actually do that, if you surrender your need to understand it all, then you probably will worry a lot less. And then now you know you're not in control, so you'll probably pray more. And as you're worrying less and praying more, the peace of God is going to rest. That thing exceeds anything that we can understand. And then what does this next sentence say? His peace will guard what? Not just our heart, but our hearts and our minds. So wherever you are in the process, if you're in with, with head faith and you're working on your heart, you know if you let that peace of God reign in your life, you will be able to have a guarded heart and a guarded mind. It's pretty cool. When you think about that, God's peace, it empowers your faith while it's disempowering your doubt. So it's like your faith and your doubt are increasing at the same rate. Your faith is increasing because of the peace of God on your life, but then doubt is decreasing. There's some, there's some very practical ways to do this in verse, verses eight and nine, which we're not gonna spend uh, time on, but where it says here to fix your thoughts. So how do you stop worrying? How do you stop being anxious? What says here, fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you've learned. See how this is active faith. I'm, I'm having faith in something here and now I'm getting discouraged or frustrated. So now I'm gonna fix my thoughts on things that are true. Where can we find things that are true? In his word. Read back over, uh, read over Psalm 103 that we read. Read over Hebrews 11. We've read Hebrews 1, 11, I think verse four, verse six. We haven't even read that whole entire chapter. I've been reading that chapter all week. Just read over Hebrews 11. Be inspired by other people's stories of faith. Then you'll be thinking about things that Paul's talking about here. Then he says, then the peace of God will be with you. How do I stop worrying while I'm praying? Start thinking about these things. Stop praying for a little bit of time and start reading God's word until you could tell that faith has entered your heart again and then begin to press into those things once again. I'm gonna close with this Psalm, Psalm 37. We think about Mary and Joseph and their journey. They were taking action based on what they believed to be true. They had to wait on God for it to actually happen but their waiting was active. It was not passive. I just love these verses of how they apply right back into Philippians chapter four. It says, uh, starting at verse three, trust in the Lord and do good. You know what that goes back to? James chapter two, right? Faith with works, faith with good deeds. So trusting in the Lord is faith. And he says, do good. Then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord. What is that? That's the focus. That's the, that's the turning your affections to him. And then he will give you your heart's desires. A lot of your translations say the desires of your hearts. In fact, I've heard it taught before many times before that, you know, if you delight in him, he's gonna give you, he's gonna let you have all the things that are in your heart. And I actually think it might just be switched just a moment. That when we delight in him, that he actually puts in our heart the desires he wants us to have in our heart so that when we come to see those things come to pass, we know they're according to his word. So it's not, I want that red Corvette and I'm delighting in you, I'm delighting in you, I'm delighting in you, I'm delighting in you. And I want the desire of my heart now. But as I delight in him, he actually gives me desires in my heart. 
And then I don't have to rationalize it. I actually can believe in my heart that those things are going to come true. Commit everything. What's that mean? Trust. It's faith. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him and he will help you. He will make your innocence radiate like the dawn and the justice of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. And it goes on, it says, be still in the presence of the Lord. Being still before the Lord does not always mean inactivity. It means that your soul can be at a place of rest. Then he goes on to say, and wait patiently for him to act. Wait patiently for him to act. Wait patiently for him to act. So when you think about waiting patiently, that means that you are looking forward to something happening. You're actually looking forward to an occurrence. You're not sitting back doing nothing. That's not what this moment is about. That phrase, waiting patiently, is an intense focus. It's a stillness in your soul, but there's an activity that's happening in your heart that's saying, I'm waiting for you, I'm looking for you. So you're not just hanging back doing nothing. Does this make sense? Active faith is an intense focus of believing that God is going to fulfill what his word says. It's not just sitting around doing nothing, waiting for him. The Bible says it's impossible to please God without faith. So we let our faith remain active until we see that. Looking this word up, that word, the, the root word in the original language of that word wait can actually also be translated to be in labor, which is pretty weird. The word, the, the phrase wait patiently and be in labor, ladies, I've never given birth to a child, but I don't think that those things mold. Because when we think about waiting patiently, we think about sitting on our lazy boy with a remote in our hand, reading the newspaper, just chilling, right? I'm just chilling and waiting patiently. But the root of that word means to be in labor. I've never had a child. I can't imagine what the pressure of that moment is, but I guarantee it's not a sitting on the lazy boy with the remote, reading the newspaper, just chilling. So what happens in that moment? There is an intense focus that no, no philosopher, no statistic, no odd is ever going to argue you out of the fact that you're about to have this child. Like you start to go into labor and there's contractions and yes, there's a full belief that this promise is coming to pass. And this is what Mary was involved in. This is what Mary was doing. She's waiting patiently. We read it, waiting patiently. She's waiting on the Lord, but there's an intense focus. There's an active faith saying this promise will come true. And I believe that this is what we need to do when we're waiting on the Lord. While we wait, we read more. While we wait, we listen to more worship music. While we wait, we pray more. While we wait, we rest in Him. And rest in Him does not mean be inactive. It means let our soul come to a place of rest when we're sitting before Him so we can go about our day and be productive while, we're, while we are expecting that promise to come true. So I can, I can only imagine like when, G, when, when Mary was able to hold Jesus for the very first time. You know, just to be able to look into his eyes, like, oh my goodness, this thing really happened. His promise came true. I believed in faith and God was faithful. You know, we think about that time, we think about the nativity scene. Think about, she watched him grow up for 33 years, every single day. 
one of my, my kids and I were just talking, like, I wonder what games he played. And he was filled with joy. He's the essence of joy. So he had a lot of fun growing up. A lot of smiles, a lot of belly laughs, right? He did not walk around like that with his pleated, you know, he had fun, filled with joy. So I can't imagine what it looked like and felt like for Mary to hold her promise for the very first time. 33 years later, I have no clue what it felt like in her soul, in her mind, to see her son on that cross. No clue what that felt like. But I actually believe if God gave her the gift of faith to believe that he was going to be born, that he also gave her the ability to have faith that this death meant something for all of humanity. She had faith in his death. She had faith in his resurrection. I believe she held on to her faith through this entire process knowing that her son was born to die. It's quite amazing. I want you to listen to this. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to check us out on the web at centralconnect.org.